Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa Programme. Welcome to Africa Aware. Thank you for listening. On this episode, I will be discussing what the recently published UK Government Integrated Review means for Africa with the director of the Africa Programme, Dr. Alex Vines. Also on this week's episode, you will all join me in a deep dive into the current state of affairs in East Africa with Shuva Anyoni, the executive director of the African Leadership Centre, Nairobi. In a fascinating discussion, we spoke about the reasons why the UK is pivoting to East Africa, which is signalled in the integrated review, and whether the historical relationship the UK shares with the region matters today. We also discussed how East Africa can best leverage this burgeoning international interest for its own benefit, and Shuvai provided her perspective on how current responses to insecurity in the region must be reframed if they are to succeed. Let's begin with Dr. Alex. Dr. Alex, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Good to speak to you again, Yusuf. As director of the Africa program at Chatham House and Institute, with of course a global reach, but based in the UK, what are your immediate thoughts on the integrated review? Could you possibly introduce it to our global audience listening? And where did Africa fit into it? The integrated review sets out the UK government's overarching national security and international policy objectives to 2025. And that's important because it's a comprehensive overview, review of what are the UK's priorities going forward and what should be its foreign policy. So if you then read the integrated review, there are kind of four key areas that it was focusing on. One was sustaining strategic advantage through science and technology. So how does the United Kingdom become a global player in the science and technology area? and particularly gaining economic, political, and security advantages. The second one is shaping the open international order for the future. So how is the United Kingdom going to partner and reinvigorate international institutions, laws, and norms that enable open societies and economies to flourish so that the United Kingdom can benefit from that? So within that, there are a number of tensions. One is how do you have policy that both promotes democracy but is also looking for free trade and international cooperation. So that's the second one. The third one is strengthening security and defence at home and abroad. So that's how you work with allies and partners to help to maximise the benefits of openness, but also how do you combat threats of radicalisation and terrorism, serious and organised crime and weapons proliferation, to name a few. And finally, the fourth objective is building resilience at home and overseas. So improving the United Kingdom's ability to anticipate, prevent and prepare and respond to the risks ranging from extreme weather to cyber attacks to pandemics. So those are the four overarching objectives. Africa doesn't really appear very much in the integrated review. There are a number of African countries that are highlighted as important for the UK. They are countries that have been previously highlighted in previous reviews by the UK as important. So we're talking about South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Ethiopia, and a new one is Ghana. What was interesting for me in the integrated review was that it highlighted for the first time that the United Kingdom saw East Africa as a regional area for prioritization and for deepening engagement. 
And so that's the new departure that caught me by surprise. Only one geography in the world is named in the integrated view, which is the Indo-Pacific. We were expecting that. I think there was a debate in British government of whether to name Africa as a geography for UK engagement. There was certainly a letter to Parliament suggesting the Indo-Pacific and Africa would be priorities for development going forward, so international development assistance. But the integrated review really is much more about thematics than about regions and about geographies. Although East Africa, as I say, is the big surprise to me when reading the review. Thank you so much for your insights there and explanation about what the integrated review is, Alex. I'm sure our listeners will deeply benefit from it. I look forward to working with you across the year and being able to further the narrative that African agencies should be at the forefront of any government's thinking on foreign policy. Thank you, Yusuf. Moving on to the main interview, I was lucky to be joined by Shuvayan Yoni, who is a gender, peace and security practitioner and researcher. She currently serves as the executive director of the African Leadership Center Nairobi in Kenya. The African Leadership Center, or ALC, is a research and training initiative that focuses on nurturing the next generation of African leaders, thinkers and practitioners within the peace, security and development sector. She has worked extensively with a range of regional and national policymakers, civil society actors and academics in post-conflict and transitional countries on the African continent. Shuvai, how are you? Good afternoon, Yusuf. I am very well, thank you. And thank you for this opportunity. So today we'll be discussing East Africa, the region itself, and actually the diverse elements that exist in the region the challenges and actually the opportunities that also exist. East Africa has largely managed to buck the trend of low growth that has affected much of the continent's largest economies. In 2021, the IMF has predicted a 4.8% bounce back for the region. And of course, that leads to other countries beginning to look upon the region favorably. One of those countries is the UK. And the UK government recently published strategy document that was spoken about earlier, Global Britain in the Competitive Age, the Integrated Review of Security, Defence, Development and Foreign Policy. There was a clear reference to East Africa as a region where opportunities exist for the UK. Shuvai, what do you believe the reasons behind the UK's pivot to East Africa is? Thanks, Yusuf, and thanks for that question. And I think it's an important question and conversation at many levels, given the shifts and changes in global dynamics, and in particular, the United Kingdom and its positioning globally, and of course, then in relation to the African continent. I think one of the first things that I observed that really stuck out for me when I perused through the UK's integrated review was the the positioning of this review and the positioning of the United Kingdom as a problem-solving and burden-sharing nation with a global perspective, and then placing this in the context of its role and position on the United Nations Security Council. So, Things like sustaining international order, promotion of open societies, free trade, and global growth. And I mention this because I think when we look at the pivot of the UK to Africa broadly, but East Africa specifically, some of these pillars or principles of engagement with the rest of the world, I think, are critical and perhaps will come up as we go through our conversation. When we think about the pivot towards East Africa, first of all, we must look at 
the pivot to Africa generally. I think the review talks about taking advantage of existing UK investments on the continent, but also developments such as the African Union's strategic development and the progress it's made and its positioning as a strategic partner for change and transformation on the continent. And also, I think, you know, previous investments of the United Kingdom, as I've said. So first of all, I'm thinking about the need to focus on Africa in general. And one of the, and you've already mentioned, I think, the growth predicted for specifically East Africa, but the continent overall, in spite of COVID-19. So one of the reasons is the UK not losing out or missing out on the benefits to be gained from the predicted economic growth on the continent. And then, of course, we have the ongoing conversation about the United Kingdom's exit from Europe and what replaces that. And I think a big focus, of course, is on the African continent. But turning to East Africa in particular, I think we cannot ignore the role of the historical relationships and the historical place of East Africa in the narrative and the development of the United Kingdom. I think East Africa has a collection of former British colonies whose relationship with the United Kingdom has evolved, but also remained intact in a way. And so the strategic economic interest within East Africa of the United Kingdom, where there is a larger concentration of these former colonies that I think have greater receptivity to British interaction than other former colonies. So if you take, for instance, Southern Africa, where I would say there's probably more hostility and more kind of resource nationalism, for example, in South Africa with the debate on land in Zimbabwe with just a historical narrative and rhetoric about imperialism or colonialism, etc. So I think there's greater receptivity in East Africa than there would be in other parts of the continent with the same historical kind of relationships with the United Kingdom. The second reason here would be the ecosystem of British influence that I think still remains within East Africa, and which makes re-engagement or increased engagement such as this more workable. So, you know, a number of countries in East Africa are still part of the Commonwealth, or if we count Rwanda as part of East Africa, has recently become part of the Commonwealth. So you have quite a, a number of people who have either been educated, in, you know, part of the workforce or human resources, educated in the United Kingdom, or where there are systems that are comparable. Then when we think about historical relationships or emerging relationships as well, the third thing I would say here is perhaps the need to temper or to counter the growing influence of China, especially from an economic perspective. And again, to ensure that as the UK is exiting Europe, that there are other options and alternatives in terms of investment. The second set of reasons, I would say, if you look at all along the East African coastline, we see that there is quite a great deal of unrest and instability violent interactions at several levels, or just the rupture, I think, in what we have known and what we have considered to be democracy. And if we go anywhere from Mozambique with unrest in the northern provinces in Cabo Delgado, if we look at Ethiopia, what's happening in the Tigrayan region, if we look at Tanzania recently, Uganda also earlier this year, 
there is a lot of unrest and what would be termed instability. So I think that East Africa presently represents the most present and direct danger to peace and security, possibly on the continent, but with a bearing on British interests, on United Kingdom interests. Uh, not only interest, but historical investments. So investments in education, investments in research such as science and technology. And this review document um, talks at length about, you know, re-engaging or, or engaging, uh, having more investment in those areas, as well as the military investments that the United Kingdom has in the region. It's really interesting you brought up the concepts and actually the impact of colonization and, and its effect on the future relationship that the UK has had with these countries in East Africa. And actually to dissect that a little bit further, when it comes to the impact of colonization, particularly around you know the beginning of Pan-Africanism in direct response to that colonization, and now we find ourselves back in a situation as the world is so globalized, do you believe the UK is at the front of the queue for many of these East African nations where they had historical relationships, as you said? Or are they fighting against other actors who have those common interests, mostly from an economic perspective, who don't share the same historical relationship? I would say that the UK probably has, given the the history of the relationships, there's perhaps more potential for advancing the relationship. And I wouldn't necessarily put it in a hierarchical order. I don't know necessarily if the who gets first dibs between, you know, whether it's Gulf states, China, the UK, the rest of Europe, whether that is necessarily a helpful way to look at it. But I think it's more about what stands to be gained from the different sets of relationships and how those relationships interact, whether it's with individual countries in East Africa or the countries as a bloc. And I would think, however, that the UK has slightly more of an advantage in these areas, because if we take China, for instance, China's relationship with Southern African countries, for instance, even you know historically from uh, liberation struggles, etc., is rooted in ideology, in shared ideology. Whereas I think the engagement with East African countries is not necessarily so. And it has, has evolved more along economic lines and lines of benefiting one another from an economic standpoint and building that relationship from an economic standpoint. So in my opinion, I think the United Kingdom historically has an advantage in the region, especially with particular countries uh, such as Kenya, such as Uganda, even Tanzania to an extent. But again, it's about how the, the set of relationships evolve, how they're invested in and which elements of you know, the review, for instance, that the United Kingdom is laying emphasis on at particular points and how that interacts with interests declared or undeclared by other countries and other players. Following on from that, I'd love to hear your perspective, particularly on the impact that geopolitics, as you've mentioned, is having on policymakers in Africa and East Africa in particular, right? You mentioned China. Of course, we are seeing private military contractors from Russia across nations on the continent. Of course, the UK, America and its relationship with Somalia. And of course, the widening security impact of those relationships. Where do you see the opportunity for Africa to leverage these relationships and its international relations for its benefit versus, of course, 
the way that some choose to frame this discussion around a new scramble for Africa, and with East Africa being, of course, a region where, as you mentioned, financial opportunities exist. How can Africa leverage it using agency in its own regard? This is really interesting. And I like the fact that you are focusing on less of the new scramble for Africa and the focus is on the opportunity and how Africa can leverage. Let me focus on three ways. The one is institutions. The second is people. And the third is knowledge and research. So in terms of institutions, The continent has a plethora of regional institutions that over the last, I would say, 10 to 12 years have developed and evolved in significant ways and ways that may not necessarily be appreciated and recognized for their value or the potential in actually leveraging the position of the continent in relation to all of these actors, as you have said. The greatest institution I think we have at our disposal is the African Union. The African Union, across all its various commissions, ranging from trade and infrastructure to peace, security, political affairs and social affairs, even gender affairs, has developed numerous, multiple policy documents, has established normative frameworks, which are ready, I think, for the continent to take a hold of and implement in order to guide many of these relationships. If we take it down a level, we have the regional economic communities, which I think are far advanced. And of course, they are at differing levels when we look across the continent, but they're far advanced, especially in the EGAD region or East African region, Southern African region and West Africa. These institutions are far advanced in developing these normative frameworks that guide or that can further guide interactions with this multiplicity of actors, whether it's on trade and economics, social affairs, peace and security, as they have done, and also now with the COVID pandemic, for example. The second area, as I said, is around, uh, before I actually I talk about knowledge, let me talk about people. I think the greatest resource that the continent has is in its people, is in its human resources. We have, you know, if you think about relations with China, for instance, if you think about engaging with other governments, we have a continent filled with people who know many of these spaces, who have interacted at many of these levels in various ways. And I think the overemphasis perhaps on state to state interactions being the only formal kinds of ways that exchange of influence happens with many of these actors or even confining it perhaps to the private sector is is something that may let us down. And we need to look more into how we use our people. How do we use ordinary men and women who do business in China, for example? as a source of knowledge and information on engaging. Those who trade in the Gulf states, those who live in both the US and Europe, for example, but also on the African continent. And then of course, part of these people is the next generation, young people, young Africans, who you know have different kinds of interactions with all of these actors. And then I think the most important thing of linking the people to the institutions as well is research and knowledge. I think there's a lot we have to do around knowledge production and our knowledge production 
in these particular areas? How do we uh, use the data at our disposal in order to advance these relationships? So not only in ways that we sort of generate research papers, we publish, but how does that research actually relate to some of these relationships and some of these interactions, especially at a people-to-people level, and how does it then advance the agenda of the African continent? But lastly, what I would say is I think as I've mentioned, the institutions, the people, and the research, I think what needs to happen more is really the agenda setting at the the regional and the continental level that makes this a priority and does not sort of leave it to the fate of internal dynamics in, in individual countries. I think too much investment has gone into our regional institutions and they need to be leveraged or used in order to leverage the relationships that African countries have with the rest of the world. Those insights are fascinating and I completely agree with you. I think there is a need for a much more focused and actually strategic manner in which African, and particularly East African states, leverage these relationships, right? And, And are able to benefit for their own populations and to ensure that they see the most uptake with regards to how nations outside of East Africa interact with them. And I think the regional bloc is a perfect example of that. An area that I really want to explore is security and widening insecurity in the region. As you stated earlier, widening insecurity leads to the many assuming that East Africa will be the the hotbed of security difficulties for the continent as a whole. Of course, from from Al-Shabaab and its activities in Somalia and Kenya to growing insecurity in Mozambique and, of course, the situation in Tigray. Insecurity seems to be a, a topic that the global international relations community are really engaged on when it comes to East Africa in particular. What do you believe is the future for East Africa in being able to tackle these insecurity challenges properly and in a manner that ensures their populations and their citizens can best benefit? I think at the core of it, and when we look at insecurity across the continent, at the core of it, there is an absence of mutuality between those who govern and those who have power and wield power and those who are governed or those who are citizens of a particular place. There is limited shared understanding or even not even limited absence, complete absence in many instances of a shared understanding of how groups or people will live together. And at the center of that, as I've said already, are those who wield and exercise power. And I think part of the future of addressing insecurity is, first of all, at a regional level, I would say, is agreeing on the consequences of not addressing insecurity. Now, it'll be difficult to try to say, okay, what is the root cause? Because we always talk about root causes. We must understand the root causes of conflict, et cetera. And that is good. It's important. But I think the reason that we need to have a shared understanding about the consequences of not having security, of not having stability, of not having peace, is its impact on ordinary people. And that is something that needs to be appreciated. And I think we are quite far from getting there. I think a second thing that we need to address as we think about, look, I don't think we can ever live without 
insecurity. As long as there is a, <laughs> I, I believe that as long as there is uh, something to be benefited by being able to wield power over another, I think we will always have insecurity, we'll have instability, we'll have violent insecurity at that. However, I think if we genuinely serious about moving towards some kind of peaceful state or peaceful society, one of the central components has to be building on the mutuality I spoke about, has to be understanding what those who are most affected by these concerns, what their needs are and what their priorities are. But also that then requires us to perhaps even take away much of the way we have understood peace building, much of the way we have understood development, much of the way we have understood inequality and equity and how we address those things. Oftentimes, the models that are used to try to fix a situation or to bring resolution to a conflict, for instance, applying models that, yes, have been tested elsewhere, but often have failed in those places they have been tested, but they continue to be used in many of these contexts. So I think there is a fundamental need to listen, to simply listen to those who are in those societies, in those contexts affected by many of these conflicts and to listen to them about how they see resolution and be able to enter into conversations, dialogue, that takes us to a place where we can actually develop perhaps new models, new approaches that could take us a little bit further to those places. The third and last thing I will say on this, and I think this is pertinent even as, you know, we were talking earlier about the UK's review, even as the outside world engages in all of these contexts, is to understand that, and, and I was saying earlier that there is a need to see what the consequences of this unrest is. And I think the greatest consequence is the knock-on effect in the region. And I think one of the ways of tackling that is really to engage all of those states affected. So for instance, we spoke about Mozambique earlier. Zimbabwe, which is all the way down south, so further down along the east of the continent, but there is a serious knock-on effect in Zimbabwe from what is happening in Mozambique, which has a knock-on effect in Tanzania, in Malawi, in parts of the Great Lakes, in Burundi, Rwanda, linked to Somalia, linked to Ethiopia, to Djibouti, to Kenya. So the absence of analysis that demonstrates the extent of the risk and the consequences and beyond simply the military effect but the effect on an entire ecosystem, societal and communal ecosystem of these conflicts or of this insecurity. I think if we fail to address that, we cannot get to a place where we can resolve some of this widening insecurity. The very last thing I'll say is, in terms of, you talked about the future, how do we tackle this insecurity in the region so that we secure the future one of the things I would say is we do not have an understanding of the future. And the future is often limited to those who have and wield the power, who will sit around the table to resolve or to mediate an issue, the concerns about economic growth or investment, 
And then now, as we see more and more concerns around humanitarian responses and the ability to respond immediately to prevent Rwanda 1994, to prevent similar atrocities that we've seen across the continent. But I would argue that perhaps we need to think about the future in terms of those who would benefit from the development we are talking about, those who might benefit from silencing the guns that will be agreed to by those who sit around the table, those who would benefit from immediate responses, meaning that they have a chance at actually being alive. And if we think about those people who are probably five to six years old, 15 years old, if those people become the priority, not only in terms of our focus, but also in terms of understanding what their needs are and what kind of systems we may want to leave behind for them in the next 20, 30, 40 years, because they will be making decisions about hopefully not similar things, but about the futures of their own countries, their own context, their own existence. So that is really, for me, the the critical thing. Do we know what the future is? Do we know who the future is? And do we know how to prepare for that future? If we do, I believe that many of the things that cause us insecurity today, we would approach in very, very different ways in the region and in the rest of the continent. I think that brings us to a perfect ending. I think your point particularly around who we're building a future for would be something that I'm sure our listeners will deeply appreciate. Thank you so much for your time, Shuva. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. And I hope to speak to you soon. Thank you, Yusuf. Thank you for this opportunity to engage with your listeners. I look forward to interacting more with yourself and colleagues at Chatham House and interacting with others on issues that affect the African continent. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe on the platform that you're listening to us on to ensure you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review, as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.